right. Um, so I'm here with take one. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Research at OU Law School podcast. Today we have another episode in our Judging Brexit series. I sit down with David Dennis, who is a lecturer at the law school, and we talk about what Llewellyn, Hart, and other early realists would say about the Miller II judgment. You can also check out his post on the UK Constitutional Law Association's website. If you want to see a video of our chat, you can head out to our 50 Years of Law blog. If you haven't checked out our blog yet, this is a perfect opportunity to do so. The links are in the show notes below. Um, we're here in our ongoing Judging Brexit series, uh, and I'm talking with David Dennis, who is a senior lecturer at the law school. No, just an ordinary lecture. Just an ordinary one. A humble ordinary lecture. <laughs> Yet. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, one of your blog posts um, that you wrote on Miller II. Yes. Um, and you bring in the golden oldies of Hart, uh, Dworkin, Llewellyn. Llewellyn mostly. Yes. Um, Llewellyn and Hart in different aspects. Mm. Um, strangely, for an equity and trust lawyer, I've always been interested in legal theory. Mm. And my tutor at uh, Hull University uh, was a great Llewellynist. And I've never quite recovered from the time that he returned an essay to me one Easter on the Bramble Bush telling me, I really think you should read the Bramble Bush before you write <laughs> the essay. And from then on, I learned some self-discipline. Okay. Um, yes, that's actually generally how it goes. Read it before you write about it. Yes, yeah. yeah. I've tried that. So what would Llewellyn have to say about Miller II? Well, I was um, thinking about Miller II. Um, and funnily enough, the first thing I thought of was not Llewellyn, but for some reason, which entirely escapes me, I remembered a passage in The Concept of Law by Hart, which I spent ages looking up and suddenly realised it wasn't in the, uh, the chapter on the rule of recognition, although it was about the rule of recognition. It was in the next chapter. And that um, was really about indeterminacy and the rule of recognition. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking about that, and I was reading through the uh, judgment in Miller II again, and looking at some of the blogs um, which had been uh, written on it. And I noticed Eileen McCarg, for example, refers to uh, the apparent uh, dressing up in uh, almost inevitable deductive logic form mm -hmm. of a uh, series of propositions, which are in fact a raw novel. And that immediately made my eyes light up, and I thought then of uh, Twining and his statements about you don't, the judicial process consists of two parts. One, uh, judicial decision-making, and then judicial reasoning. Mm -hmm. So. The decision is not the same as the reasoning. The reasoning is usually ex post facto and justificatory for a decision which has already been reached. I'm not saying there's anything improper about that. And as soon as I thought about that and I thought about Twining, I then thought about Llewellyn. Mm -hmm. 
So, of course, in my blog, I don't deal with Llewellyn first, Twining second, <laughs> and Hart third. Um, I was, I happened to be uh, writing uh, a draft book proposal at the moment, and one section in the introductory chapter is on how people are misrepresented. Mm -hmm. And it happens a lot in legal theory. Uh, some people misrepresent Dworkin. Dworkin misrepresented virtually every legal positivist you can think <laughs> of. Um, but it all really started with Llewellyn and his famous phrases, um, law really is what, what officials do and rules are mere playthings. Now they were written in an introductory uh, series of lectures for freshers at uh, Columbia University. And he put them in and everyone went well, it started a real tidal wave, wave of criticism uh, because they said, well, this is opening the way to totalitarian uh, government, government and the rest. And it wasn't what Llewellyn meant at all. Mm -hmm. What he was saying, um, and it really appears in a book, the German title to which I could never pronounce, <laughs> but it was republished in 1989 in English, thank goodness, Case Law in America. And in Case Law in America, um, what Llewellyn did was to consider a series of cases mm -hmm. and to look at reading and he regarded a series of cases as an institution. It was how officials reacted to the background circumstances mm -hmm. and the different ways they reacted at different times. And in addition to that, he took up a theme from the Bramble Bush, uh, although the Bramble Bush was strictly written after the Case Law in America book, um, about uh, how authorities, precedents are used and the leeways of using precedents. So you never really apply a precedent, mm -hmm. you either expand it or you contract it. Um, and all that reason showed that actually Hart, uh, uh, sorry, that Llewellyn thought very seriously about rules, what he was really saying is ignore the paper rules in the books, mm -hmm. read the cases and look at each individual decision because that's <coughs> the source of the rule and you'll find that a lot of different things can be said about any particular decision and how, if at all, you can formulate a rule about it. And that then sent me on to back to uh, Martin Lachlan's uh, article talking about a paradigmatic shift in uh, Miller II between case law reasoning mm -hmm. and um, <coughs> constitutional principles and their development, which, of course, as soon as you say the word principle, mm -hmm. immediately sends you to Dworkin. Yeah. And um, so it set off a whole lot of things going, and um, I'm hopefully going to produce an article, a much longer article than, uh, uh, than the blog. So... In answer, that's a very long answer to your first question. <laughs> and in fact, I came to the subject of the question last. As you do. As you do. Um, so what's the, what's the tension between um, Dworkin and Principles and Llewellyn and Hart? Well, Llewellyn and uh, Hart are both avowed, avowed and anti-formalist, mm -hmm. contrary to all the, the stuff you read about Hart, etc., but they <coughs> talk about rules, 
They talk about them very differently. And, but, and when Hart uses rule, the term rules, he actually meant to include principles, which you can see at the beginning of, I think, chapter five. Mm-hmm. Um, and something which he developed much more uh, when, after uh, the model of rules had been published by uh, Dworkin, and then Hart referred to it in the postscript. And it caused Hart a lot of difficulty because he, write, he meant to do the postscript in two parts, one dealing with Dworkin and the rest um, dealing with uh, other critics, most of whose points he thought were valid, mm-hmm. but he didn't think Dworkin's points were valid. <laughs> so he spent all the time writing about um, Dworkin and never got round to the critics he agreed with. Uh, and people, I think, got a lot, uh, worked out a lot of resentment on that in the, this continued exchange of vituperation, sorry, informed discourse, <laughs> between legal theorists. If you read lighter on Dworkin, you get a magnificent take. It is vituperation in writing, beautiful prose. And if I ever feel down and sad, I open the the chapter, have a cup of coffee and start to feel the world's better. Um, Dworkin, and it was a valid point uh, initially, said that, well, they're not only rules in case law, but the courts supply principles, Mm -hmm. which he says are moral principles, and I would actually say, well, are long-standing rules, really, which have become wider and wider and developed into principles from the case law. And both uh, Hart and Llewellyn will approach, Llewellyn's more for the paper, uh, uh, for the case rules, as I've explained, Hart's more for the paper rules. and Hart also approaches it from a much more limited aspect of uh, analytic and semantic philosophy. Dworkin's value was that the courts can use principles to get round various... Um, the famous case he gives, gives is the American Wills case, where the um, testator was very sadly murdered by, I think it was his nephew, um, and the nephew was a beneficiary under mm. the will. And Dworkin says this was a classic case of the rules being departed from, the statutory rules on succession, um, in favour of principle that you shouldn't benefit from your own wrong. And he announced this in what he thought was a fit of startling originality, totally forgetting that Oliver Wendell Holmes and Cardozo had referred, sorry, I think Cardozo, had referred to this rule many years before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would never accuse Dworkin of plagiarism because I'm sure that was unintentional and it would be entirely wrong for him to make that accusation. So let's go back to Miller II. Yeah. Um, so what do, what is it about Miller II that brings um, Hart and, and Llewellyn in? The lack of case it's, law? It, the, but, the, the syllogismatic reasoning in it? Well, there are two aspects. Um, one is the uh, use of development of constitutional principles, which the Supreme Court says are well-worn, parliamentary mm-hmm. sovereignty and parliamentary accountability. Um, but the odd thing is, is that no one understood parliament, either parliamentary sovereignty or parliamentary accountability mm-hmm in the way that it's put forward by uh, 
uh, by Lady Hale and Lord Reed. Now, the I mentioned Eileen uh, McCard, and that she gave the um, the account of Miller too as novel reasoning dressed up in inexorable logic. Mm -hmm. Well, there was nothing logical about the extension of the principles because so far as I can see, and with the greatest respect to the Supreme Court, I always bow in obeisance when I mention the Supreme Court, um, I think had before the decision in of the Supreme Court, no one would have used those terms in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, the what then led that that obviously led me to um, explore the um, decision further from a le legal theory point, and it goes to show I think that legal theory always underlines doctrine. If you've got a doctrinal point, you can find a le legal theory point at the drop of a pin, really. And one of them was how they talked, for example, um, about the ostensible approach of the scope and extent of deciding the scope and extent of a prerogative power, that is justiciable, but not mm -hmm. the exercise of the power. But when you go through and follow the logic, there is no logic in it, because in fact, the distinction collapses half the way through the judgment. So, whenever something looks logical, always think twice about it because something is very rarely logical in the sense of the term lo uh, uh, logic that most people use was deductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. Apart from the fact there was inductive reasoning <coughs> and the use of analogy, and I go back to inductive reading because Conan Doyle made a very bad mistake. He put forward Sherlock Holmes as um, as great use of deductive logic. It was pure, pure inductive logic. Mm -hmm. um, so all, whenever any, anyone describes something as logical, if you go through it, you can almost find, um, you'll certainly find out a fault in, in the purported syllogism. But I've never believed case laws about logic anyway. Go back to the distinction I drew between the judicial, uh, uh, between judicial uh, decision making and judicial reasoning. Then go back to Joseph Hutchison, who's an exact contemporary of uh, of Carl Llewellyn, who comes up with a judicial hunch mm -hmm. and says, what do you do is you make your decision and then you dress it up in, as a justification. And Cardozo said, um, I, I, was it Cardozo or Oliver Wendell, Wendell Holmes, who said, you can always find authority for the decision you've reached. Well, that's why, um, if, you, if you're going back to Oliver Wendell Holmes, he wanted to have this sort of, not the realist, but the scientific approach to, to the law. Yes. In the sense of, look at what all the cases say, um, that might be the right thing to do. Um, that's where I would depart from <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, but in another, another thing, going back to the, the tension between judicial reasoning and judicial decision-making, um, courts are often sort of um, thrown in that they are illegitimate lawmakers yeah. in that sense. So what would you say to defend them? Well, um, it's very simple, really. Mm -hmm. uh, 
going back to what I said about how uh, Llewellyn talked about the leeways of precedent and how they're never applied, really. They're expanded or contracted. And that's because the facts of most cases, reported cases, can always be distinguished. And Llewellyn was great at pointing out, together with Oliphant and other legal realists, the underlying factors of a case, which are often unspoken in the mm -hmm. judgment. And you might say the underlying um, un unspoken judgment as such, in that it was never put in these terms, is that Boris Johnson behaved as a rotter in proroguing Parliament. Now, I think the situa it's a much more complex situation than that, uh, clearly. But when you look at the... Uh, when you think back about lawmaking, and there is a serious point, and this is a hard mm -hmm. point about lawmaking, but lawmaking law takes place, always has, by judges. It's part and parcel of judging. Mm -hmm. It's not being an activist judge. Sometimes it's more startling than most. For example, uh, Donoghue and Stevenson in this country and Lord, Lord Atkins, uh, famous judgment. But go, what Llewellyn was pointing out was the expanding, continual expanding and contracting of rules to fit the case. So I'll, uh, I'll ask you this question. If, if, it, if judicial lawmaking is always happening, so what is it that constrains it? Because um, Parliament works within procedures. It works with over 500 parliamentarians. After the next mm -hmm. election, it's going to be 500. Um, so that means that you have to get other people on board. Um, so what is it that constrains judges? Or the well, I think most legal theorists actually um, are agreed on this, that they're, they're institutional con mm -hmm. constraints. You're working in an institution to begin with, particularly at an appellate level, and working with judges, I mean, they, they can soon spot someone going completely off beam, as it were. They can't <laughs> always control them. And somehow or other, I've thought of Lord Denning there. Don't know why. Um, but there is always a measure of constraint within the institution. Judges take their job very, very seriously. You very rarely come across a ma maverick judge. There have been ma ma maverick judges. And sometimes in the descent. Hmm? They're usually in the dissent. They're usually in the dissent at the appellate level. Mm. If you've got them at first instance, you can have a very tricky time. <laughs> um, but because of that, they, Llewellyn's quick to point out that what most courts do is actually try to seek justice. That's mm -hmm. the impulse. However weak or enfeebled it may appear, um, and you may sometimes not even see it. But there is that impulse within the judicial system to achieve justice and I think most judges I appeared of at, at first instance really saw the justice of the situation mm -hmm. and then everything slotted in round that so if you tried a formalist argument and said you're bound by this case they would look at you I always remember my pupil master talking about a, trying a, a, a case a personal injury case and counsel for the insurers was absolutely furious because he cited a case uh, decided by Lord Denning where um, someone had stubbed their foot on the pipe mm -hmm. and he and uh, Denning had said it wasn't an obstruction within the meaning of the act and uh, the judge said well with the greatest respect to Lord Denning if I'd stubbed my foot on the pipe 
I would have considered it an obstruction. Um, and there is that element of common sense. Sometimes it can be exaggerated. But there's nothing inherently bad about lawmaking. And it is constrained. You've got all kinds of forces looking on you. Um, you've got your fellow judges, even if you're not in an appellate court. And you want to appear a respectable member of your, your impression. Thomas is a writer, um, Ed Thomas, a New Zealand uh, retired judge now, who sets out a lovely chapter on judicial restraints. But Llewellyn, Hart, Thomas, and many others all have, and uh, Hart particularly, when he um, starts talking about discretion, and they all talk about restraints. The restraints of the surrounding situation you're in. The other thing, uh, talking about heart, um, is that you can take this to the indeterminacy point as mm -hmm. well, because everyone thinks fondly of the um, Supreme Court seeking to set out constitutional um, principles. But... There's a very odd thing about this, because they are, going back to Laughlin's uh, phrase of a paradigmatic shift mm -hmm. between case law reasoning and principles mm -hmm. in Miller, they're developing principles which no one had heard of until the decision in Miller too, <coughs> And that's what set me up in relation to my, my thoughts along in, in the train, along to heart. Because Hart says that at the very essence of the rule of recognition in constitutional cases, just because a court's decided the decision doesn't mean to say it will be accepted. Mm -hmm. Because it, if it is accepted, it's because no one's bothered to, or people have agreed with it, or no one's essentially decided to challenge it. But that's an assumption which, is, which isn't always warranted. And it arises particularly, as in this country, where you have an unwritten constitution. Where you have a written constitution, the bounds of the constitutional court are decided, more or less generally, but obviously constitutions evolve, etc. But they're decided more or less generally by an agreed political process in setting up the constitution in the first place. Well, depends. Um, as you said, they evolve, and mostly they evolve by somebody pushing on the limits. Yeah. Um, and they evolve in the sense that uh, the courts themselves are eager to push their limits. Yes. Uh, in that sense. Um, but the, the biggest difference between the unwritten and the written constitution is that in written constitutions, there's a document you get to point at. Yes. When you when you justify your decisions. Yes. Um, rather than in here, there are conventions and there are um, precedents and then there's um, custom and this is, we did it this way last time. Why why shouldn't we do it again this time? Um, but to to wrap up the, the the talk, I actually wanted to to finish on something that you wrote in um, in your blog, which is when it comes to the acceptance of judicial lawmaking or that this isn't the end of the decision and that is that nothing succeeds like success yes and it succeeds if it gets accepted that's right yeah. um all i'm saying is that there's no given mm -hmm. that um the principles in, in miller 
will survive intact for uh, any significant period of time. Parliament can always come back and just overturn the decision. Yep. Um, and that's why I refer to uh, Parliament as being the representative of the electorate. I have always differed from Hart that uh, I'm, I'm an anti-elitist in the sense that I really do believe in the electorate. Mm -hmm. That That's not meant to sound patronising, <laughs> but I've never regarded Parliament as the fonz et origo of all wisdom. Too long, too many things have happened to show that that is the case. Parliament can get it as wrong as anyone else. Yep. And so if a decision was made, um, and Hart talks about a South African decision mm -hmm. uh, in the days of apartheid, where it couldn't be um, where the matter couldn't be judicially settled, <coughs> and that kind of thing can always happen, but it's when it arises in Miller, because we have an unwritten constitution, and secondly, when the Supreme Court was set up, it, it adopted the name the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But it's not the it's not the U.S. Supreme Court, which has always had a particular role in the separation of powers. Um, we have here a court which is designated the Supreme Court because it couldn't be called the House of Lords any longer, mm -hmm. and so the Supreme Court came in in two thousand and nine. Couldn't be called the Constitutional Court because there wasn't a Constitution yet. Yes, <laughs> and my point is that one thing that hasn't been settled is that the precise role and ambit of the Supreme Court as a constitutional court, I think, has only been in existence for 10 years. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be settled, so life is going to be great fun in the future. It's one of those, like the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much for the talk. My pleasure. Again, thank you for listening to our podcast. As ever, you can find out more about the law school at our website. Don't forget to also visit the 50 Years of Law blog. You can find the links in the show notes below. The music in the background is Endless Love by Dirty Mac. Take care and hope to see you again. You're off. <laughs> thank you. Autographs later.